Continuing where we've left off, we're now 33 sermons into working our way through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we will take a short break next week. We'll be going into our, our Christmas series before returning to finish off the last few sermons in Mark next year. But this is where we're up to, Mark 15, verses 1 to 20. And it is the Word of God, and so we're going to ask that God might speak to us and enrich us and challenge us through His Word this morning. Heavenly Father, we do not want to just come here to do something that's part of an event. We want to encounter the living God through his word. Father, I pray that you would protect me from saying anything that is not in accordance to your good and perfect will. But Lord, that each of us would hear your very word afresh to us, that we might see and behold the wonders of the Lord Jesus Christ that we might respond to him in humility, in faithfulness, and obedience. Lord, convict us of the wonderful good truths that are present in the gospel. And Lord, grow us that we might love you and serve you and proclaim your greatness in this world. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We all make decisions every single day. As a matter of fact, all of you have made decisions today. You made a decision to turn up here, you made a decision to get dressed, and I thank you for doing that. And you probably did it the other order around. You probably did the dress thing before you, before you came here. And if you're a bloke, that probably wasn't a hard decision. It was probably just a case of whatever was clean and was on the top of the pile. Some of the ladies might have spent a bit more time deciding whether or not things matched or not and things like that. But every single day, we make decisions. Some of them are good. Some of them, we humbly admit, aren't so good. And every single choice that we make is a reflection of what is most important to us, what we value most. Whether it's a health or a dietary choice, where it's a business decision, where it's a choice about morals or ethics, and it's probably fair to say that every choice that we make is not only a choice for something, but is also a choice against another alternative. Now, sometimes that's a hard choice. Sometimes you might be between, do I be healthy? Or here is this beautifully deep-fried wheel of camembert wrapped in bacon. Hard choice. <laughs> Or other times it's a complete no-brainer. You're like, I would have this over this any day of the week. Today, as we look at Mark 15, 1 to 20, we see the Jewish leaders make a choice that is not a minor or a fickle choice. It is a choice that is of life and death. And more than it being a choice, it is an exchange of one man or another. And it's not just a decision that the Jewish leaders once made. It is a choice and exchange that each one of us are called to make. A choice of life or death. But even amidst all of the ugliness of the trial that takes place before Pilate, there is the beautiful picture of the glorious exchange that is made available to us in the gospel. So we're going to look at a time to be silent, verses 1 to 5, 
a time to choose and exchange in verses 6 to 15, a time to evaluate in 16 to 20, and we're going to ask the question is, what is the great exchange? What great exchange have you chosen? So a time to be silent. Last week, as we kind of wrapped up chapter 14, we saw that the Jewish leaders had a very specific outcome in mind that they were not going to let go of. They wanted Jesus dead. They wanted him wiped off, taken out. And as they tried to corroborate something by way of a charge that would reach that end goal, you could probably summarise those discussions in verse 55 where it says the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. Remember back in chapter 3? Even back there they decided they wanted him dead. They were watching him closely for three whole years trying to find a case against him and still they got nothing. So the high priest in his frustration asked a pointed question to Jesus and the way Matthew tells it, he even asked him under oath. He says, I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Mark records it as, if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, same thing. He says, I adjure you by the name of the living God. How's Jesus going to respond to that claim? Jesus responded, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He's like, yes, I am. I am the Son of God. Yes, I am. I am the Christ. And if you think that you're going to have me crucified and that's going to obliterate me, that is the end of me, guess what? I am also the one that David spoke of in Psalm 110 verse 1 who will be exalted to the right hand of the Father where he will reign. I'm also the one that Daniel spoke of in chapter 7, verses 13 to 14. The one who will come with the clouds to the Father, who will be given an everlasting kingdom, of whom every people group will bow. And I am the one who will be coming with the clouds of heaven to judge the living and the dead. Now, if they were looking for some fuel for their case, Jesus gave it to them in bucket loads. So much so the high priest was satisfied. There you go. That is it. There is blasphemy to a T. He has said he is the son of God. Now that's only blasphemy though if it's not true. If in fact the high priest rejects that statement, then it's actually the high priest who is guilty of blasphemy. But no matter how excited the high priest must have been that he got a charge of blasphemy against Jesus, he stuck with three problems. Their desire was to have Jesus crucified. In John 18 verse verse 31 is very clear from the Jewish leader's perspective, they don't actually have the right to hand out capital punishment under the Romans. Secondly, the biblical punishment for blasphemy is stoning and then being hung on a tree. And thirdly, Pilate or Rome has zero interest in discussions of theological matters and disputes around theology. 
So if he's the one that they are depending upon to have Jesus crucified, they're going to have to change the game a little bit. But they realise he's the only one who can make that call, so off to Pilate they go. Now, knowing that he's got no interest in setting theological disputes, you'll notice the way in which they change the charges in a way that appeals to Pilate, to something that might get the outcome they're looking for. Mark doesn't give us the details of the accusations, but Luke does. They say, We found this man misleading our nation, forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ, a king. What they're trying to present to Pilate is, this guy is a threat to Rome. He won't let us give tribute to Caesar and he's a king. This guy will rise up. He's going to take over the Romans. Whereas in reality, Jesus hasn't opposed Rome, hasn't caused others to oppose Rome. Famously, when they tried to trick him into question about should we pay taxes to Caesar, he says, well, render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But Pilate, who had a reputation for being a little bit paranoid, hears the word king and thinks, now I need to examine that. So he asked Jesus, are you a king? Jesus' answer wasn't quite as forthright as it was last week to the Jewish leaders, but he says, you say that I am. Or maybe it's like, yep, you said it. As he recorded in John, he says, my kingdom's not of this world. Whereas he's affirming, yes, I am a king, but I am not the type of king that they're trying to tell you that I am. I'm not some sort of political zealot here to take over Roman rule. If that was the case, you'd expect to see me and all of my followers fighting up against the Romans. And then as the Jewish leaders add claim upon claim against Jesus, Jesus remains silent. Fulfilling as the suffering servant of Isaiah 53.7, when all these things are brought against him, he opens not his mouth. And Pilate was amazed. Because Pilate knows this guy is innocent. He's like, they're bringing all these charges. I can convict you. Say something. But Jesus says nothing. Now, a couple of weeks back, we saw Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane where he prayed that famous prayer. Father, take this cup from me. But not my will, your will be done. As Jesus had the anguish of thinking of the sin of all mankind being placed upon him, how offensive that was to him and how uncomfortable it was, but he prays, not my will, your will be done. And as it was the Father's will that he would go to the cross in the place of sinful mankind, Jesus is not going to speak up in opposition to what is the known will of the Father. And we would do very well to learn from that same lesson that we would be silent far more often, that we would be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry. When we have in the Scriptures the very will of God, when it is plainly made known to us, when it convicts us, when it speaks to us, when it rebukes us, when it corrects us, 
A right response in humility is to be silent and to respond to it. Not to speak up in defence as to why God should be coerced to our position. As Jesus taught his followers to pray, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Or as Soren Kierkegaard prayed his prayer, your will, nothing else, nothing less, amen. There is a time we should be silent. But there's also a time to choose an exchange. Now apparently Pilate had instituted this idea of releasing a prisoner at this time during the feast. And as the Jewish leaders bring it to his attention, I think there's something in the back of Pilate's head that thinks, here is my opportunity. Because it's painfully clear, Pilate does not think that Jesus deserves to be crucified. When he's on trial before Pilate, three times Pilate says, I find no guilt in this man. In John's Gospel and in Luke's Gospel, it specifically says Pilate sought to release Jesus. Pilate's wife had a dream where she came and said to Pilate, have nothing to do with this righteous man. So Pilate, in his conscience, says, I can't crucify this man. He's not guilty. But on the other hand, he's got massive pressure from the religious leaders saying, he is guilty and I want him punished. I think in Pilate's mind, he thinks the plan goes a little bit like this. If I offer to release Jesus, then I'm saying he is a convicted criminal satisfying the Jewish leaders but I also get to satisfy my own conscience by letting him go. But as the two names of Jesus and Barabbas are placed before the religious leaders and the crowds, the unanimous decision is, give us Barabbas. Now we don't know too much about Barabbas. Other than that, he obviously led an uprising against the Romans, murdered some people in the process... It's quite possible that he might have even been considered a hero by some of the Jews who didn't enjoy being occupied by the Romans. But whatever the case, he was a guilty criminal and Jesus Christ was the perfect and innocent Son of God. The three things we do know is that Pilate knew that the Jews had brought Jesus out of envy. We also know that Pilate knew there was no criminal charges against Jesus that were worthy of crucifixion. And thirdly, we know that when given the choice between a guilty criminal and the innocent, perfect Son of God, the religious leaders, to their shame, chose the criminal. That is a sad day in history. When the Jewish leaders would choose a criminal over the perfect son of God. When the religious leaders who were given the chance to shepherd God's people, to lead them to God, to uphold and teach the scriptures, the very scriptures that should have pointed them to, or not should have, did point them to Jesus, that they would choose to set free the guilty and sentence the innocent. Not just any innocent, the eternal Son of God 
the long-awaited Messiah, the Christ. When questioned what they should do with regards to Jesus, the response was this, crucify him. And then when Pilate asked, why, what evil has he done? You'll notice they don't have any claims of evil. They just say, I don't care, just crucify him. So Pilate, not because he thinks he's guilty, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. Pilate, he's not a believer in any sense, but even he could see through it all. He knew the Jewish leaders were bringing Jesus out of envy. They were jealous. They were jealous as the crowds heard Jesus speak. They say, we've never heard anyone teach with such authority. When they see the signs that he did, they say, we've never seen anyone do anything like this. And they're seeing some of the attention being taken off them and given to another. And they're like, this is having an impact on us and our ministry. They were very different than John the Baptist. When John the Baptist perceived and he looked upon Jesus announcing as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, he didn't say, oh no, this is going to ruin my ministry. I've been having the crowds flocking to me. He says, he must increase, I must decrease. He realised in the revelation of Jesus Christ, things had to change in his life and that was a good thing. But the religious leaders, they saw the same Jesus and they said, We won't decrease. He must go. Crucify him. Now I hope you see the pure evil and self-centeredness that is in their actions and in their motives. Because every single one of us does make a decision, does make a choice with regards to Jesus. You'll notice when you ask anybody, have you ever considered the claims of Jesus in the Bible? So often the response you'll get is, yes, but. Which effectively means, yes, I have read it. And maybe I'm even convinced and compelled that Jesus is who he says that he is. But if they have come to a right view of who he is, they have recognised if Jesus is who he says he is, then that means something for me. That means something about me and my life needs to change. If he is the king, then it means I'm not. If I recognise that he is the king of kings and the lord of lords, then it means I need to accept, if I come to him in repentance and faith, that there is someone external to me who has the right to determine what is right and what is wrong, who has the authority to determine how I should live. And sadly, for too many people, they say, no, that's just too much. Nobody tells me what I'm going to do. Nobody defines other than me how I should live. Or the slogan of the day where people say, if the way I am isn't good enough for you, you're you're the one with the problem. Isn't that such a, a proud statement to make? It's kind of like, there's no fault in me. If you don't like anything about me, it's not because there's any fault in me. You've got problems. 
Well, let me put forward a few thoughts, especially for those who might be find it compelling who the Jesus is, who he claims to be, but you think, I'm a bit anxious about what that might mean for me in my life. That was certainly my own concerns when I came to understand the truth of who Jesus was. What sort of impact does God actually want to have on your life? Well, in Romans, Paul expresses it this way. It says, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order they might be the firstborn among many brothers. So Paul is telling us what God wants to do in calling us to himself is to make us like his son, Jesus. Now, I don't know too many people who actually have a negative opinion of Jesus and who he was and what he did. And what we've seen these last couple of weeks, even his worst enemies struggle to find fault with him at all without making things up. The one who made you, provided you with every good thing, wants to reconcile you to himself. Not to take away the good stuff out of life, that thought that people think, if I come to Jesus, he'll take away all the good and fun stuff. No, the thief comes to steal, steal, kill and destroy. Jesus says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it in abundance. He made you. Regardless of how well you think you know yourself, nobody knows who you are and what you need better than the person who made you. Like if you had a classic car, and just for this example, I like my Tiranas. It's a Tirana SLR 5000. And you love that car, but it's having all sorts of mechanical problems. You've taken it to Ian, Ian can't fix it. You've taken it to Nathan, Nathan can't fix it. You think, oh, I just want to drive my car. And somewhere you come across the engineer who designed that engine and actually even hand-built the engine that was in your car. And you think, I'm taking it to him. Nobody knows how to care and fix this thing more than the guy who designed it and made it. So if your biggest concern in coming to place your trust in Jesus is, I'm not sure if I can trust him what he will do with it, there is no better place to trust your life. I would be more worried about what I might do with it. And I can tell you, what I might do with my own life isn't real pretty. Every single night on the news, we see exactly what corrupt mankind is capable of doing. Now, you might think, steady on, Steve, I don't do any of that sort of stuff. But when we examine our own hearts, we will recognise that something's not right. When we think about just the damage and hurt that we have caused to people who are the closest people to us, that we love dearly. We're all guilty. No matter how hard we try, we dishonour God. As Paul describes it in Romans chapter 1, we neither honour him as God or give him thanks. But even in this unjust situation before Pilate, we see this beautiful picture of the gospel. The innocent gets punished while the guilty goes free. That's exactly the good news of what Jesus came to do when he said, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and lay down his life as a ransom for many. He didn't come for the religious. He didn't come for those who think that they're righteous. His salvation he offers isn't a reward for being good enough. 
It is a gracious gift for those who recognise that they're not good enough. As Peter explained it, Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Or as Paul describes it in Romans 5.8, this is how God showed his love to us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, the innocent, was punished on our behalf so that by faith and repentance, we, the guilty, could go free. And because it's not a reward for our good works, means that it is open for all to receive. All who are in this room, all who are watching online, all who are listening to a recording, every single person you work alongside, every single person in your neighbourhood, every single person you have ever looked in the eye in your life. Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God, suffered and died in the place of sinful mankind that we could go free. And it's tragic that even the religious leaders who had all of the externals of appearing to be righteous and religious did not place their trust in the one and only means that God has provided for our salvation. Do not forfeit the eternal salvation that Jesus Christ offers in pursuit for something else that Paul would describe as being done. And the time to evaluate. Verses 16 to 20 not only describe the mockery that Jesus endured, it kind of characterises the response of everybody who rejects the claims of Jesus Christ. Especially us Aussies. Have you noticed us Aussies love to mock things that we don't agree with? Not only do we love to mock things that we don't agree with, anything that might actually be uncomfortable truth, just by nature of our desire to deflect things, we'll mock it as well. I reckon if social media existed in the first century, there would be memes galore mocking Jesus and his claims. But as Peter records, when he was reviled, he didn't retaliate, he did nothing in return but instead entrust himself to the one who judges justly. Despite the beating, the mocking, the spitting, even those who spat in his face, such is the graciousness of our Lord Jesus, if that person came to repentance and faith, he would give them the right to become children of God. It's even possible that the centurion who declared him to be the son of God after his crucifixion may have even been amongst this group who are beating him here in these verses. But one concrete example we do have is the Apostle Paul. The one who turned from from jailing, beating and wanting dead those who named the name of Jesus Christ as he encountered Christ for himself became one of the greatest instruments used by God to bring people into the kingdom. So what is your great exchange? Not title goes here. Clearly someone forgot to put the title there. Being me. We have seen a lot of great exchanges in this passage. 
the Jewish leaders happily exchanged a guilty criminal for the perfect, innocent Son of God. They exchanged the truths about Jesus for lies about Jesus. They exchanged the means by which they could have a standing before God for having a standing before in the eyes of men. You and I, we make decisions every day and every single one of them highlights our heart's treasures, our heart's priorities. And I can tell you, every decision we will gladly choose the greater in exchange for the lesser. We'll happily give up the lesser for the greater every single time. Back in chapter 8, Jesus challenged people by saying, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? Now, there's probably no one here in this building this morning that, the, that, that Australian culture would call rich, let alone having the entirety that the world has to offer. But Jesus says, even if you have everything this world has to offer, but you forsake the one only name given under heaven and earth by which you can be saved, you are lost. You have missed out. Do not glory in something. Do not glory in an exchange that sets aside Jesus Christ in pursuit of something else in this world which effectively just leads to your eternal ruin. Rather, glory in the cross of Christ that the guilty can be set free because the innocent, perfect Son of God has died in our place, who was raised in victory on the third day, where the sinner can receive the very righteousness of Christ, when those who were once hostile, living as enemies of God, can be restored and have peace with him, where you be changed from being the object of wrath to be the object of his love, adopted as sons into his family that we might truly proclaim along with the Apostle Paul, who says these words in Philippians 3, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you that You are calling a people to yourself. You have in this city a people who are called by your name. We pray that the gospel might be proclaimed not only in this city but around the world. Not just by uh, a limited few but by all who have come to know the grace that is found in Jesus Christ. Lord, we thank you that you do not call us to a calling that is to, to take away the good things in life, but to, to give us the very things that we were created for. Lord, forgive us from times when we have been so easily distracted in the pursuit of what Paul would call dung. 
when we have the wonderful great riches in Christ. We thank you that we don't need to be good enough to come to you for salvation, but we do need to recognise that we weren't good enough and that Christ has died for sins once and for all. And for that we are eternally grateful. In Jesus' name we give you praise and thanks. Amen.